good at this? <laughs> All right, what's up, everyone? It is Thursday. It is 1.30 p.m. That means it's time for the Strength and Success podcast. This is episode 35, titled Clap for Everyone, which we'll get into in a sec. <laughs> they used to shut the lights off back in my day. The clapper. So uh, we're live, of course, on Instagram. We record this absolutely live so people can drop questions on Instagram, and people have sent us questions through both of our Q&As. We usually drop them every Wednesday for people to drop questions for the podcast or just in general. Sometimes we answer them only there. Sometimes we answer them only here, depending on how in-depth they are. So again, we just got back. This weekend, we will be traveling to Connecticut. That's correct. Yeah, Connecticut for Hellhounds Gym. It'll be Greg Panora, myself, and Riley doing our seminar from Raw to West Side, kind of going over the history of everything, but we really love to talk about mindset and the psychology of the sport because that's what's going to keep you in the sport. We just did the mindset seminar down at the Ghost Gym opening in Miami, which was really spectacular gym. It was really cool to see all the ghost mm-hmm. equipment on one side and kind of like a bodybuilding aspect on the other side. So plenty of room there, really pretty gym, although Alex hates the uh, puke green on the wall. <laughs> they have these color, but it's Miami. So Miami Vice colors, Ghost Strong was really neat. So it was really well received, that was awesome. Uh, Julius Maddox was there, Dan Grigsby was there, uh, Dawson, Wyndham, and Shane Hunt had put on seminars for bench and deadlift and the whole nine. So really cool to get to hang out with those guys, get to know people better, get to know Tim really, really well, who owns Ghost. I've met him several times, but we had a very in-depth conversation. And uh, Riley got to see me get hangry on the drive back. <laughs> you act like that's the first time I see you get hangry almost every single day. Yeah, I'm a very hangry individual because I brought snacks and food with me, but you know, when you're stuck in traffic, it's hard to find that. So anyways... This Saturday we'll be in Connecticut. Last Sunday we were in Miami. And uh, you can sign up by contacting Hellhounds Gym. They're in Connecticut. I think it's actually in my story right now. You can contact them directly. But we're going to talk about clapping it up and your community. You want to start? No, you start. All right, no, you start. So this happened when we were on one of our nightly walks. Uh, We were talking about how the community tends to be against each other sometimes. That us versus them, you know, run with us or run from us mentality, which is really stupid in my opinion, because I I used to train in a lot of CrossFit gyms that would have like some powerlifting stuff in the back where I usually would actually coach the, uh, the owner of the CrossFit gym. So he allowed me to put powerlifting stuff in the back. And there was one thing I really noticed about the CrossFit crowd was they clap for everyone, the community, whether they're, and they're always timed, but they're always competing against each other and the clock. But whether you're the first person to finish or the last person to finish, everyone stays, everyone supports, everyone encourages and that's what draws people to crossfit so much it's not the movements it's not the the physical pain of going through a wad those are uncomfortable but it's the community that keeps you there it's it's everyone clapping for you everyone wanting to see you succeed everyone wanting to see you do well and staying and making sure that you do well and that's something that people always talk about what does powerlifting need it needs that community to clap it up for everybody it needs people to be encouraging. If you don't want to see someone succeed, it's because you're not. And it's envy and it's jealousy. Like if you don't want to see someone do better, and you're not encouraging them to do better, it's because it reflects upon you of what you're not personally doing in your own life, because otherwise you'd succeed. There's an old expression that if you hang out with five millionaires, you'll be the sixth. Meaning like if their behaviors are a certain way, your behavior is going to match it, it's going to come up with them. So not that you know you need to hang out with five millionaires, although it would be great if you had business goals. But it's one of those things where you need to clap it up for the entire community and they will in turn clap it up for you as well. Give more than you take. Yeah, um, yeah this started because Trevor kind of always jokes with me that I want to be a CrossFitter so bad. Um, <laughs> she really does. Yeah, um, I, I definitely don't like the workouts. Like those, those aren't for me. Um, that type of movement isn't necessarily for me, but like I've watched like the CrossFit games since like 2016. I think I watch it like religiously every single year. 
Um, I just finished a book by Tia Toomey. Um, I enjoy really like diving into their mindsets um, as a games competitor or like a high level crossfitter because they're so much more regimented in general than powerlifters. Um, and they, they care a lot more. Like they give a fuck about themselves a lot more than most of us do. Um, I can't lump every powerlifter into that category, but majority of powerlifters don't really care about themselves as much as a high level CrossFit athlete does. Um, so I like to dive into those things. And like Trevor mentioned, we were talking on our walk about, you know, how it seems like anytime you watch an event or, um, you read something or whatever, it's like even the first person, the person in first place is still cheering for the person in second place. Like they're pushing them along. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was just reading Tia's book, when she, the first year that she beat Kara Saunders, uh, Kara was like, you gave me a hell of a fight. Like you made me work harder. And like, she congratulated her and, you know, I'm sure Kara wanted to win, but she still was clapping for her competitor and like was, uh, you know, was proud that someone was there to push her was that was, she was glad that someone was there who was at the same level right. as her and pushing her to be better. And yeah, of course you're going to want to win and we're all competitive and everything, but that's what powerlifting doesn't have. It's like, you can't talk to the person who's, um, you know, second or first to you, because if you do, then that shows a weakness or something stupid, you know? And like, there's like Trevor mentioned, there's a lot of like teams, you know, where if you belong to this gym, if you li both live in the same state, but you belong to this gym and someone belongs to a different gym, you guys are like mortal enemies for some reason. It's like mortal combat when you go to a meet, like it's not that serious. Like we can all still be proud of everyone and push everyone along. We can all still have our same competitive nature and want to win without being an asshole about it. Like you don't have to bring someone else down or bring a different team down or bring your competitor down just to win. If anything, I feel like that takes more energy from you and you're probably gonna end up losing something anyways. Like the more that you focus on how much can you beat this other person because you hate them because they're your competitor and you know, you're against them, the more energy you take away from your actual performance. So I would personally like to see more people being like, hell yeah, that person almost beat me. That's awesome. They're great. Yeah. Or, you know, my best friend started a business or someone that I know on the internet started a business and that's really awesome. So I'm going to be proud of them because they're successful. Instead of being like, well, I could do it too. Then do it. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had a... Uh training partners that would be like, well, I'm going to outlift you. And I'm like, that's my job. I'm going to help you do it. And then when you do, you're going to have to catch back up to me because by you getting stronger, I'm going to push harder and I'm going to get stronger and we're going to get stronger together. Uh, but she mentioned that, you know, the CrossFit aspect, if you look online, I don't follow CrossFit much anymore because I'm out of the gyms, but there are many high level lifters who literally move to train with each other mm -hmm. and do things like that. Um, she was just talking about Tia to move. She mentioned she moved to like Tennessee or something like yeah, that. Tia, whatever her name is. She moved to like Tennessee to train with like somebody who had beaten her before or prior to learn from them, work from them. And that person who had beaten her helped her get to the point where she was beating her. And that's just, that's something that a lot of people don't see. Um, I know uh, Edward Blair's on here and I know um, Angel Maldonado's on here and they train at the same gym. Uh, Surge New Levels has an impeccable community where everyone tends to get together and encourage each other and help each other out. It's not like we're against each other. It's like we may want to win on meet day, but we're all going to get there together. And they're all strong as shit. They're all strong as shit. Yeah. Like everyone gets stronger that way. So it's really, really cool to see that when you have that in your community. And like Riley said, there are gyms that it's like us versus you. I have athletes who got kicked off their team when I started working with them as their coach because they're like, if you're not working with the head coach, you're against us. And it's like those teams have shrunken in size because of that. And my team has only grown nationally 
for the opposite approach, like I will help anybody who wants help. I don't mind helping anybody I can within reason. You know, I do get paid for this as, as part of a service. You know, you, I have clients, but I put up a ton of free content. We put up the questionnaires. We have different things. We have a low price point team coaching program. That's what we're hoping to build with the Cultivating Strength team is people who work together as a community and doing something together. That togetherness is the most important aspect of longevity in this sport. And we talk about that at every seminar is your positive environment. And for not everyone is it capable to be in a gym setting. You know, not everyone has that surge available to them. There's a lot of people who train alone or in a garage or in a small community and they need that team setting virtually. The world has changed dramatically. Uh, I used to have to go drive out 45 minutes to Fort Lauderdale to train strongman with a pro strongman because that was the only place that had the equipment. And now thanks to like Rogue and, and um, Mike Bardo, strength equipment and other companies, there's equipment everywhere and there's gyms that have it everywhere. So I didn't need to do that now, but I did need to do that then. And he welcomed me literally into his home mm -hmm. to train as a community. In one small garage that had half of it with like lawnmower equipment, we would have like eight to 10 guys training as a community working together. It was really, really awesome. It's, it's that community aspect that brings everybody up. Yeah. And if you have this, I'm against you and I don't want to see you succeed, it's because you're not doing what you're supposed to. It's really fun to have someone who can push you along. And even if that is your direct competition, like I would much rather have some direct competition and someone make me say like, oh, I have to raise the bar to like meet, you know, meet myself to that level. Um, the more that you bring other people up around you, the more that you elevate yourself too. So having a strong community is like way more important than trying to be like, if you're trying to be the best and you're, you know, like you only want to be the best if you don't have any competition or you know you only want to be the best and like you seclude yourself and you're the lone wolf uh, you're gonna be pretty miserable you know like i don't know too many people that have secluded themselves in this sport and you know they're the quote-unquote lone wolf who are either still doing the sport or doing very well in the sport anymore yeah we compete individually but it takes a team to keep you here absolutely a lot of people with support so it's a sport network so clap for everyone if you don't want to clap for people, step out of their lives, leave them alone, put them on mute, ignore them. Yep. But if you do want to clap for people, good on you. Absolutely. All right, let's get to some of these questions. Okay, so um, first question. Can you talk about how you organize your coaching as your platform grew larger, such as keeping client information, keeping track of when clients are competing, etc.? Okay, this is a great question. Gabriel probably thought I ignored his question and answered everybody else's in my story, but it's a long question. There's two parts. <laughs> There's two parts to what he talked about, so it didn't fit in one box. But uh, somebody asked me, because we just released the team training, Cultivating Strength on Train Heroic, and I tried using Train Heroic to use as a programming platform for all of my clients, which did not go very well. It took me three to four times as long, and it only showed me one month at a time, so I couldn't see ahead. When I type my programs for the individual athletes, I get to put notes at the top. And so when I type them out in the note things, they're all in order as I've done them. So I just go through an order, go through an order, go through an order, and so forth. And if I need to change somebody, I just copy, paste, and then put another one in there. And so it's in there, and I put a note at the top. This is not the original, blah, blah, blah. It allows me to put notes to myself in there as far as when that athlete's competing, what division they're competing in, what federation they're competing in, the whole nine. And then under exercises, I can also put notes for people. Remember to pause these. Remember not to hold your breath. Remember to put big toe pressure if I need to. So I can leave coaching cues in the typed one, which you really couldn't so much on Train Heroic for an individual. You know, if you have like 20 or 30 athletes, you probably can go through that and just put things in separate notes. But I'm all about efficiency. I don't want to have to open up so many different things and go back and forth, back and forth. So all of my programming is done in one aspect. Everyone can send me videos on one aspect. They send through Instagram. Hopefully they trim them. If not, I punish them. <laughs> and then uh, if they need to have anything that involves their training, it goes through email. Because that's the only two things I want to have open when I'm programming is my email on my computer and the, the notebook 
section where I can write their programs and stuff like that. So it's simplicity. So I can just bounce back and forth. I go to email, I type their name in, I see what pops up and I can add it to their program. If they haven't emailed me, it's not getting in their program because they didn't follow protocol. So I, I look at it like that. The more organized I make myself, the more organized I can make their programming and training. So the key as a coach is to make sure you yourself are organized first, which is why like woo travel. I always, I always laugh when somebody puts up a post like programs will be coming through at some point. I'm going to stay up all night. That means you're disorganized. Uh, we know when we compete, so we either get them done before we compete and we send them out day of, or we do it after. I've actually got to a point where after a competition, I went back to the hotel and did everyone's program I need to on that Saturday until three in the morning and so forth. So either you're organized or you're disorganized, but if you're disorganized, their programming will be disorganized. Their programming will be laid. It'll be off-centered. So you have to organize yourself first. And I can't say that my system is the best. It's just what works for me. Riley uses Google Sheets, hers is a little bit different, but also in Google Sheets, she has those bars on each person's programming where she can write when their competition is, what the vision they're doing, when they're going to be adding wraps and so forth. So she has the same thing where she can put notes to herself or notes to the athlete in the Google Sheet and see it all in one task that she can go from week to week to week, right? Segments it in weeks. Well, I have, I have three different organizational tools for, um, my lifters mm -hmm. is I'm very organized. I thrive on organization and structure. So, um, yes, I do program through Google Sheets. So um, each person basically has their own sheet. And when I go to update the person's program, um, I essentially use different, what I will do is I will use different tabs for everyone at the bottom, but I send the weeks individually. So for me, when I pull up someone's program, I will have all the tabs at the bottom like labeled by weeks. Right. So that way I can refer back to them and like what they did last week. I ask clients to put notes um, for increases or decreases or like if they if something felt great or bad or whatever, I ask them to put a little note in there. Most of them, some of them do, most of them don't, whatever, that's fine. Um, but I send weeks individually so that way the client only has one singular focus. Instead of seeing like 47 tabs open at the bottom, they will just see one week. So every at the end of every week I send someone their updated week, but I personally keep it in tabs so that way I can refer back to weeks over time. Um, I do utilize like the, the spreadsheets in there to where like I write meet date uh, on there. Like I'll write, you know, 12 weeks out, deload next week, wraps come on at eight weeks out, whatever. I will even write the structure of like, if I want them to have three strength weeks in a row and then a deload, I will literally write SSSD or whatever. Right. So that way I know. Notes to self, not necessarily to the clients, but notes to self. So she keeps herself organized in order to help them. Yep. So there are notes on those for me too. Um, the other thing that I utilize is like on my MacBook, they have like the sticky notes app, like a, like a, like a physically a post-it, but it's on my computer screen. And on that, I will have my client list in order of like how I write them and next to their names, it'll have their meet date again, which I also ask for them to email it to me because it's easier for me to pull up rather than scrolling through a bunch of text messages or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, so next to their name, I will have like deload next week, um, meet in meet May 14th, um, needs to train at home this week. Like whatever they, th that they told me it's written in two spots in their program and on my sticky notes. So that way when I update their program, um, it goes in there. If you didn't tell it to me or you didn't email it to me, it's not in there, so it's not going to be updated. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing that I use for organization is another Excel spreadsheet where I have a list of all my clients and I also have a list of their squat, bench, and deadlift uh, PRs. So that way I know that what their current maxes are because I don't, I don't specifically write percentages in the program. Like you'll never see three by three at eighty percent for me. Um, I will physically write three by three at 
whatever 80% is. So if your 80% is 200 pounds, it'll say three by three, 200 pounds. Um, I do this because a lot of the times clients will take like a front squat max off of their back squat max. Back <laughs> squat. Uh oh, we're reconnecting. Just wait for it to reconnect. Those that are listening on the podcast, our IG uh, connection has a poor connection, so it's possible. Yeah, we have We're some back. weather. Hopefully, you guys didn't lose anything. Hopefully, we still have audio. The weather's a little little weird here, so the uh, internet signal's a little off, but hopefully, you guys didn't lose anything. If you did, just let us know below. I can always restart it. But yeah, if you're listening on the, on the podcast, we temporarily stopped down. But that's another form of organization and simplicity for the athlete that she's Riley's mentioning is it happens a lot where you program a front squat and say a percentage and someone will try to take it off of their wrapped max back squat like oh I couldn't do this it's like we were never oh, supposed shit. to <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I use percentages specifically so like when I am programming on the left side here's my sticky notes with all the notes that I need in the middle here is the um, the spreadsheet that I'm actually currently writing and off to the right is all of their maxes so that way I can look through so I do everything that way um, it's Probably overkill, you know, right. but like for me, it reminds me in multiple places to do multiple, like when you have as many clients as like myself or Trevor has, like you have to keep on top of it somehow, especially like doing other things, you know, like we also run like Culture Nutra, we're now doing the group coaching, we travel a lot. So I would rather have more systems in place to keep me accountable. Like it's almost like double checking, right? So I have the notes on my sticky note thing app. And then I also have the same notes written on their spreadsheet. So that's me checking myself twice. Double down. Yep. Yeah. That's great advice. So organize yourself first in order to organize them. And your systems might evolve and change over time. I didn't start this way. I evolved to it as I actually got overwhelmed. I'm like, I need a better system. Uh, we have a question from It's Kelly. Tried creatine monohydrate five grams a day for the first week and noticed a decrease in sleep quality quantity. I stopped for a few weeks and then restarted at two grams a day, but had the same issue. Heard of this before recommendations. Um, creatine itself is not in any way, shape or form a stimulatory thing. Your body actually manufactures creatine on its own anyways during the Krebs cycle and it is an abundance in red meats and stuff like that. So you get creatine all the time anyways. I don't know if you bought a pure creatine monohydrate or if you bought some type of blended product that might have stimulants or other things in there that can affect your sleep quality. So you might wanna read the bottle and find out. But if you need a pure creatine, Culture Nutrient has a pure creatine. If you find that it somehow makes you more alert or awake, take it first thing in the morning because that's gonna wake you up and then keep your circadian rhythm. But there's nothing actually in creatine. It's naturally occurring in the body anyways and in, in meats and so forth that would actually stimulate your mind and keep you up. So if it was the creatine itself, if you had a hamburger at night, the same hamburger would keep you up because that's got creatine in there too. So it's probably unlikely the creatine, you may have bought a product that has like a blend of different things in there or other stimulants that you're unaware that you're taking in that are keeping you up. Yeah. Because that's not something that's a normal side effect of creatine intake. No, yeah, I've never heard about that from creatine, not from the sleep aspect. So definitely look into that, make sure it's pure. Um, what do we got question wise? Let's see. Okay. Um, who are some people who influenced you growing up? This was a question I answered that talked about, I talked about different decades of time and how I was influenced from a young age, under 10, I was very shy, painfully shy, introverted, and how I was enamored with like pro wrestlers because they had these larger than life personalities and larger than life physiques. So I put it into decade format. Uh, so as I was young, I was always enamored by that. I wasn't really into traditional sports yet till later in life. I got into traditional sports later in life, like after 10, and of course, I was a fan of football, baseball, basketball, but still followed pro wrestling, but really got into following like bodybuilding. Uh, my brother had a metric shit ton of bodybuilding magazines. And from like the age of 10 on, I started reading through them, um, which was fascinating. So I was 
just enamored with strength. And as a lifelong insomniac, I'd be up at the two and three in the morning watching ESPN two. They had the muscle mania contest on there. They had world's strongest man on there. They had like the flex magazine, like weekly show kind of thing. Uh, with like Sean Ray and stuff like that and they would do different gym interviews So I became enamored with these like larger-than-life big bodybuilders who just seem to exude strength and confidence because it appealed to me because I didn't have any um, Started lifting when I was 13 and obviously started with like the Schwarzenegger style bodybuilding split six days a week You know chest buys <laughs> chest chest uh, chest buys tries and back and shoulders kind of thing and legs push-pull kind of stuff um, but I really started to gravitate towards the idea of strength more than appearance because I was not a naturally born athlete and I wasn't exceptionally athletic or outgoing, but I began to notice that I was a little stronger, not in bench, but a little, strong, <laughs> a little stronger on the uh, squat and deadlift and other things. And um, I would go down to Gold's Gym and Coral Gables and train with my stepdad, Rob, and we would squat all the time and just do like heavy leg presses and fun stuff and die. And someone's like, you're really strong you should power lift. And my only real experience with power lift was seeing like Ed Cohn on the Mountaineer Cup where his nose busted open, he was bleeding. I was like, that's cool, because he still did the lift anyways. Like he didn't care, it was unfazed. Um, and so I went and found like Powerlifting USA and immediately I became discouraged because I weighed like 205 and was squatting like 585 to 600 gym high, not meat depth, but gym high uh, on a routine basis down there. And so I felt like I was strong. I thought I was strong because nobody else there at 19 was doing that. And I looked and there was a Tony, Tony Conyers at like 148 was squatting the same weight. But I had no idea what multiply or single ply gear was. I thought he was just doing that raw at 140. I'm like, I'm not strong at all. So, <laughs> so I, I actually avoided um, competing in powerlifting from a very young age from 19 on in strength sports until later uh, when I actually began to find out that you can compete, plus I was too shy to put on a singlet. That's a true story. I would not put on a singlet to save my life. Now I'm all over Instagram and my underwear. Go figure. But I uh, was more fascinated with the strength aspect still, and I began to follow like strength coaches. Like I read Boyd Epley's book, The Path to Athletic Power, when I think I was 21 years old. Um, I read um, Fred Hatfield's book, you know, uh, scientific bodybuilding, uh, bodybuilding a scientific approach as well as powerlifting a scientific approach where we talk about compensatory acceleration training and programming and Prilapin's chart. I started to know about that when I was 21 years old. I'm 42 now, so 22 years ago I've known about that. And so I was really interested and influenced by strength coaches who work with athletes. And there would be like, that was when like YouTube started coming out and people were doing like unconventional strength stuff. Like the diesel crew were strength coaches that were doing like strongman training. And, and it was very, not very physique based, but more performance based. And it grew to that. And then I found that you could actually compete in strongman locally. And so I started doing that and uh, progressed from strongman after I hurt myself to weightlifting and then eventually over to powerlifting, which is what I always wanted to do in the first place, but was too scared to do and had built that up. Uh, I've never admired an individual as much like I don't like to put people on pedestals, but I do look at people who I can learn from. So I'll usually find the direction I want to go in and find the people who know a significant amount more and have something to teach and offer value to me. And that's where I will find. So I always advise not to put people up on a pedestal, but put their education up on a pedestal because they can guide you to the direction you want to go almost as a education mentor instead of how to be as a human, because we're all flawed as humans. We all make mistakes, nobody's perfect. And if you're putting them up on this pedestal, you're gonna end up disappointed in whatever they've done as a human. But if you understand that your influence should be someone who molds and shapes your thought process maybe a little bit more, you'll go further. Yeah, I'm the same way where I generally don't put people on pedestals or like idolize people. That's not generally my style. But um, I always have the same answer for this kind of question is like who influenced me the most growing up. That was my grandma. 
Um, she actually passed away when I was 10, but so I don't have a lot of memories with her, but a lot of the memories that I have were super impactful to the point where they're carrying me into my 30s and everything now. Um, so my, my grandma was a type of woman who didn't need anyone. Like if she needed something, if she needed something done or needed to fix something or had to do something, she did it herself. And that has always been like my mentality is I don't want to have to rely on anyone else. Like I want to be able to do what I need to do for myself because I was taught pretty early on that the only person that you can rely on generally is yourself. So my grandma was a, um, she was a full-time landscaper. So she worked with her hands. She had like multiple gardens in her backyard. Um, she would take me to and from school, to and from volleyball practice, to and from whatever I needed to do. Anytime she would drop pretty much anything for me. Um, at, when I died or when I died, when she died, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> when, when she died, um, she had only had two grandchildren and I was the first. So I was like her, uh, her little princess, but, um, she, she did everything for me, you know, and she would work eight to 10 hours doing landscaping when she could, and then would pick me up from school, take me to practice. Um, my my mom, I, I lived with my grandma primarily or spent most of my time with her. My mom would always try to like put me in dresses and stuff. And like that really wasn't my style. And I'd get to grandma's house and she'd be like, do you want to go put on jeans? And so I'd, I'd, uh, I'd, go, I'd, go, yeah, I'd go put on jeans and she would go in the backyard with me. And like, uh, I was a very like hyperactive, um, athletic, energized kid, very introverted. Um, I did not have any friends, but I liked to do stuff. Like I would climb trees all the time. Like there were multiple, she had like an acre and a half behind her house and I would climb trees. Any trees that I could climb up into, I would climb. Um, I would have her time me running from the edge of the porch all the way out to the pole barn and back and see how fast I could do it. And like, I would do it one time and she'd give me a time and I'd be like, okay, I'm gonna beat that by one second this time. And so I, I would do that until like I passed out halfway through because I was so tired, you know? Um, so she pretty much did everything that she could for me and she just kind of taught me that um, I can do anything that I want, that I can do anything I set my mind to, that I don't have to rely on anyone, that I don't have to be a certain type of woman. You know, like there's still, there's still societal pressures for women to be like helpless, you know, and not be able to do anything. And she would fix her lawnmower. She would, um, you know, she had three gardens that she would tend for. She would mow the lawn, she did landscaping, she would fix her car. Um, she did everything. I have never seen that woman call. I mean, it's like kind of like a Midwest thing. I don't remember. I don't remember who we were just joking about that with. But like, you don't call people. I think it was Tom Callis. Mm -hmm. You don't. You don't call people to fix stuff. You either do it yourself or call your neighbor. And that was kind of how she was. Where she just, if she needed something done, she knew how to do it, or she figured out she how to do it. She was your first example of strength. Yeah, absolutely. she was self-assured and figured, I can do this. If anybody else can do this, I can do this kind absolutely. of thing. Which is, you know, that's why we're talking about with Tom Callis. I was, like, I was the polar opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, I grew up with like a little Jewish kid in the burbs, and when something broke you called someone and paid someone to fix it you did nothing yourself yeah. so i grew up like feeling like helpless and, and uh, unnecessary to this world and developed something later uh, strength builds character mm -hmm. that's for sure and her grandmother had a lot of character and taught her to have the same 
values and virtues, I think. She was real sassy, too, so that's where I get it from. <laughs> Damn it, Grandma. <laughs> that's where I get it from. But yeah, she definitely taught me, she definitely taught me how to be strong. Yeah, just which is why we say, you know, don't don't put a person on the pedestal, but put, put their information, put their actions on a pedestal, put how they do things and achieve things, because those are the examples you learn from, you know? She wasn't telling her to do these things. She was showing her you're capable of doing these things, and that's what a true influence is. You know, there are dictators who tell you, do this, do that, do this. And then there are leaders who show you how to do this and teach you how to do this and, and help you do this yourself. And that's what makes someone a leader versus a dictator, which we've talked about before. Don't be a dictator. You, you can also blame her for my stubbornness. <laughs> I like your stubbornness. <laughs> uh, we got two questions. I want to get through them both. Um, so Angel asked one, and then I'm not sure, 863. Opinion on having ramen noodles as a pre-workout meal. Delicious. Uh, that's like totally like a jailhouse thing, but it's phenomenal because it's carbs and sodium. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you really want to get a great workout, you want to provide the electrolytes you needed, which is the sodium basically, and you want to provide the fuel, which is carbs. So there's probably nothing better to digest easily to have like ramen noodles. And it's so cheap. It's like 50 cents a packet. So have at it, enjoy it, and get a good pump. Uh, Angel's question, how did becoming a father affect your training, both negative and positive? So um, before I had a child of my own, I was in a relationship where I was taking care of their kids as well. So I started at a young age. Uh, this is a sobering experience. Not that I was drunk, although the story does lead to me being drunk. But um, you, you realize how influential, influential you are on other people's lives and how selfish we truly are with what we want versus what we need to do for others. So at 23 years old, at a very young age, I started taking care of two kids, uh, Blake and Gavin, who were 13 and 8 at the time. And you begin to realize that you're not the only person in this world and your priorities shift and you start doing things for other people, but you also become much more aware of your own behavior. Uh, I had friends over the house for a UFC pay-per-view fight and I got drunk to the point where I was throwing up on the floor in the bathroom. And uh, my partner at the time looked at me and she's like, congratulations, this is what my son's seeing and you're his hero. And that was very sobering to me and I actually pretty much stopped drinking recreationally at that point ever like I have I've only drink at meets now like for like the last year before that I went three years without drinking before that I went four years without drinking um like I don't I don't want to ever lose control of my actions because people are watching everything we do now especially through social media people are watching so Angel has the uh, has a young daughter and so you you begin to understand of how important your time is and certain things that might be just for fun or recreational might be wasting it when it could be more valuably spent with her. So you have to begin to make choices of what means the most to you. You have physical goals you want to achieve and you have parental goals you want to achieve. You have to learn how to split your time between those two. And anything above that, if you haven't prepared for or made time for an exception for, probably is not the best use of your time, which is hard to say to some people because... Everybody wants to go out after work and hang out with the bar or everyone wants to just go to a football game or do whatever. You might not have the time unless you've scheduled it. Like you've gotten everything done for your other goals because you're going to do what's most important to you. His daughter is going to be most important. My son Titus, when he was born, was most important. So the first thing I did was for them. The next things I did were for work to make sure I was able to provide for them. And then after that, only after that is when I did things for myself. So you just have to go through a priority chart of, okay, what's the first things I need to do for them? What's the next things I need to do to provide for them? And then what do I want to do for myself and get that done? And anything extra you have on top of that, you can enjoy it. But if you haven't done the first three, you shouldn't be doing the other ones. You know, I would see people who would go do things and like, well, I didn't have time to train. And I'm like, dude, you went to the bar three times this week. You chose not to train. <laughs> you just chose poorly. Uh, it meant more to you to go out and drink than it did to train. So it means your bigger goal is to hang out than it is to progress. And that's fine. I don't choose people's goals, but your actions dictate your goals, you know, uh, whether or not your goals come true, I should say that. 
So if you have like a, a business goal or a work goal or a friendship goal or a parenting goal, those should be your priorities first. And then anything above that is gravy. But if you haven't done the first things, you don't belong doing the other, the second thing is kind of how I look at it. How did it change me? I had to become much more regimented routine and structured. That's really where it came from. I also had to hide fear. Like I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, I grew up very shy, very introverted. And Riley and I just went to the amusement park that has roller coasters. I'm afraid of heights and I don't like control. When I took Titus there for his birthday, the last thing I wanted him to know is that I was scared of those rides and wouldn't want to go in there because fear is a learned behavior. He didn't know what to expect on the roller coasters and he wasn't afraid of any of them. But if he were to look up to me and I was cowering in fear, he would have developed that same habit, which goes back to me saying, as a parent, you have to remember someone is always watching you and they're going to emulate you. The type of person you want your child to be is the type of person you need to be. I would like to go on a limb here though and say that you don't have to be perfect as a parent, right? Like I think that everyone is super hyper-focused on like, I have to be 100% perfect because if I make any mistakes, then my kid is um, going to see those things and either see me differently or they're going to grow up differently because I made a mistake. That is not ultimately true. Um, There's like a big nature versus nurture debate and it kind of comes down to the fact that children are um, conditioned and also born to have a predisposition. It's about 50-50. So you could be the most perfect parent in the world um, and your kid is still going to make mistakes or your kid is still going to be the total opposite of you or whatever it is. Like, so it's less about being perfect and more about just kind of being there when they need them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like I'm not a, I'm not a parent, but I had not great parents. So it would have been a lot, it would have meant a lot more to me growing up if my parents had actually like been there. They didn't have to be perfect. Like just, you know, just knowing, just knowing that they were there if I needed them, you know, like I am my own individual person and I don't think it's up to me or I don't think it's up to my parents to dictate who I'm going to be. I don't need my parents to live and die for me. I didn't need that. Um, I don't think anyone should be that much for someone else. Um, but just knowing that just allowing your kid to know that you are there for them, whatever they need. And, you know, I know your daughter is really young, so she's probably not at the age where that's a big deal yet. And you're very involved, um, from what I can see. So just being there and being that kind of, um, figure, like I mentioned about with my grandma, you know, like I saw her being strong in more ways than one. Uh, and that really helped carry me 30, you know, 20, 30 years since she's yeah. dead. So, I mean, if you want to sum that up, be strong. Be yeah. strong for your daughter and show her strength and show her independence and show her that she's capable of mm-hmm. anything. Because that's what I always tell Titus. He's like, well, why do you suffer through training? I'm like, I don't suffer. I choose to do this. I'm like, but the result is rewarding to me. I've achieved something and it makes me feel good and I'm helping people. Yeah. So that's what I always show him. And I'm sure you're going to show the same to your daughter. Um, we have a question here about fruits. What are your thoughts on fruit around training? Some such as Jeff Nippard recommend it while others say it's not high glycemic enough like oats, breads, rice cakes and stuff like that. Uh, you really don't need to overthink this glycemic index because protein has an insulin response, fats have an insulin response, uh, carbohydrates have an insulin response. You're kind of overthinking this. It's more in terms of working your way from the top to the bottom. Like what do your macros need to be as far as protein requirements, carbohydrate requirements and fat requirements for general health. Uh, majoring in the minors such as like glycemic index and stuff like that is not necessary. And that's what Jeff's saying. Jeff Nipper is talking about the science of that. It doesn't make any statistical or significant difference. Same thing with like people who like to talk about if it fits your macros. You know, you can put 
poor food choices in there, as long as your calorie meets your goal, you may not feel great or perform great, but you know, fruit, you don't need to have high glycemic carbs around your workout. You just need to have carbs kind of pre and post to make sure that you replenish glycogen. And if truthfully, you don't even necessarily need them pre as long as you're hydrated with and filled with electrolytes if you've eaten them the day before to make sure your glycogen stores are filled up. It's very unlikely that a powerlifting or strength workout is going to deplete you significantly of glycogen compared to you know long duration bodybuilding workouts or long durations endurance workouts like marathon running, triathlons and stuff like that. So it's, it's majoring the minors when you're worried about stuff like that. Just eat to fuel and perform. If you like fruit, I love fruit. I have it often for breakfast, you know, you'll use it to perform. Um, it doesn't have to be high or low glycemic. It just has to be within your calorie goals and restrictions above all else because that difference is negligible from there. Most people prefer something that might be higher glycemics of like, or have a higher insulin spike post-workout because they want to replenish glycogen as fast as possible. But science shows that it doesn't matter if you have that high glycemic or low glycemic because nobody even uses that chart anymore. Science will show you after like six to eight hours, the glycogen replenishment is the same whether you did it fast or slow. As long as you're taking in the carbohydrates, which is the big picture, you're gonna replenish glycogen. You can have them from clean sources, you can have them from dirty sources, it's the same. I just know that it's a lot easier to control your calorie intake when they're coming from so-called clean foods because they're more filling and satisfying than say gummy bears. Well, and you also kind of mentioned that realistically, it doesn't necessarily matter what you fuel yourself with pre-workout, it's what you fueled yourself with the day before. The day before. That generally matters the most. <laughs> Sorry, Jordan Wong. <laughs> um, Go ahead. So it's more about like what you fuel your body with the day before rather than immediately before. Like you can take in like fruits like uh, like watermelon, which is supposed to help in increase nitric oxide so you get better blood flow. Um, you can take that like 30 minutes before, but it really isn't going to benefit you if you didn't eat well to fuel your performance yesterday for today. So that I agree is also like majoring in the minors. Um, just make sure that you're fueling yourself every single day and you're going to replenish your glycogen storages anyways. Yeah. Sorry, Jordan Wong dropped his usual funny lines, his little one-liners in there. He just wants his daughter to play softball because he never wants her to come home with a boyfriend. <laughs> Next question. Um, after playing years of sports growing up and an elite, at an elite level and now being a power lifter for only three years, potential to me is defined as you haven't done shit yet. How do you guys see the word, word potential and how do you guys make it work for your own training or clients? That's a, a tough question, double-edged question. Um, your potential is what you decide it is. It is not what somebody decides for you. Like I, you have the potential to lift 800 pounds. Okay, so I have to work my way towards 800 pounds. Well, maybe I have the potential to lift 900, I just have to believe it. You know, potential is, is somewhat determined by genetics, mildly, mildly. Mostly determined by determination, work ethic, and belief. You can overcome bad genetics, so-called bad genetics, by, by doing everything possible, you know, getting enough sleep, eating right, training hard, learning more. We've talked about this in other podcasts or somebody mentioned like being a nerd and getting stronger. And we, we brought up somebody who's over three years added a significant amount to their total just because they kept fucking showing up. Um, people like to put their own self-imposed limitations on them and saying, what's my potential? And I can't tell you what your potential is because I can't tell you how hard you're willing to work, how hard you're willing to sacrifice and how much you believe in yourself. Those are only things that you can tell yourself. I can tell you that maybe you have the potential to lift 500, but you might have the potential to lift 700. How do I know? I don't know shit about your genetics. I haven't done any rate coding to look at it. I haven't done through and I don't know what your determination is. I don't know what your work ethic is. I don't know how much you're willing to sacrifice. I don't know any of those intangible things. It's not a concrete thing to say you have this potential. 
Because every time somebody breaks an all-time world record or breaks an Olympic record or does something, they're showing more and more capabilities of human potential. No one would run a race if anyone didn't think they could win or that they could beat the current record. Then we'd stop. Like if we said, okay, the fastest ever possible is gonna be that 100 meter dash that it was, we should just stop running now because no one's ever gonna beat that. We've limited our potential. But every so often, somebody else comes out and beats that record, which shows we don't know what our limits of human potential are. It keeps going up and up and up. You just have to get to a point to decide how much are you willing to work, believe, and sacrifice to see your ultimate potential. Yeah, I'll be honest. I don't give a damn about anyone's potential. And I don't mean that in a way of like, I don't care about people's progress or how well, how strong they're going to be or whatever. Um, I don't give a damn about people's potential because generally the people that have the most potential tend to mess it up, in my opinion. Like you can see someone who you're like, man, that person could be really, really strong. And that same person goes out and does drugs every single weekend and um, doesn't fuel their body and doesn't hydrate and doesn't train hard. And they just expect to show up and expect to hit these certain ways because... They have the potential to do it. Um, I So I don't care. Um, I really, like, I've seen some of the strongest people um, in the sport right now choose, like, the worst paths. And they're going to, they could potentially be the strongest, but they're going to piss it all away before they get there right. because they don't have the uh, required work ethic to keep them there. So I would much rather see someone who has very little potential work really, really, really hard every single day because they want to be able to reach that potential rather than someone be kind of like born with these gifts. Um, we actually talked about it once in the garage that people that are born with a lot of athletic ability and that haven't had to work very hard for first place tend to be the ones that fizzle out first because they don't have to work hard. So when the other people that did have to work hard catch up to them, they have no work ethic to back them up. Mm -hmm. So all that potential got them nowhere because they had no work ethic to back it up because they just expected to be handed it to, they wanted it to be handed to them their whole entire life. So I think potential is a really lame word. Um, I would much rather you talk about, instead of saying, I have the potential to do this, I'd rather you say, I have the work ethic to do this. I have the, uh, I have the grit to do this. I have the resilience to do this instead of, well, I could do this, but I'm, you know, maybe I can, or maybe I can't. Right. And that, that really is the ultimate deciding factor. And it's the old cliche saying is hard work beats talent when talent refuses to work hard. And that's really true. It is. It's very, very true. Because like Riley said, you know, if, if this came easy to you and you never developed that work ethic, you're going to fizzle out fast or lose it fast because when it stops coming on me easy, you haven't developed the discipline to do anything or the habit to do things. It just came naturally to you. So you never valued it. You know, we don't, we don't place a lot of value on things that we don't have to work hard for. Anything worth having is, is usually worth working for. And when someone doesn't have to work for it, they don't value it as much. So you you see that very, very often people who fizzle out or, or don't get as far as they could. So that's why don't look at your potential. Look at your willingness yeah, instead. Potential is overrated. Work ethic is underrated. Yeah. Quick question here on creatine. Would cutting back or removing creatine before a meet help drop a few pounds to make weight? Is it going to drop a few pounds? No. Uh, usually when I do my weight cuts, I'll probably stop taking creatine about three days out from the weight cut just so there's no extra in there and I go through like my little glycogen depletion workout and sweating and so forth. But you know, dropping it weeks out or something like that is not going to help you lose that many pounds and so forth. You just don't want to add more creatine storage in there. So that's why usually in the, the recon video I talked about dropping red meat a couple days before weigh-in so you're not taking an extra creatine but then putting red meat in or creatine in to make sure you're filling those stores back up as far as the recomp is concerned. But no, you don't have to drop it excessively. It's not going to help you lose several pounds. You just don't want to have an extra pound or so to have to cut out or sweat out. So it just helps a little bit. Three or four days is all you need to do. Plus, you want it in there for your heaviest training possible. Do we have any other? I'm going to see. <laughs> Wyatt. 
Uh, interesting point right there. Nope, no more questions on here. These are just people just confirming that they agree with what we say. Okay. Um, so someone said, cultivating strength, hard eyes, which is our group training program. Um, could I run just the accessory portion of this during meat prep? I don't know why you'd want to during meat prep, just run the accessory portions, but you could theoretically because the, the accessories are programmed in there to help build structural balance and so forth. Uh, we do have a peaking program that I just put together. It's a five week peaking program, four weeks of work, one week deload going into a meet that's in there. So depending on where she's at, she may want to look at the peaking programs, the five week peak that was just updated and added in there last night that people can use. So that tapers back to the total volume of work and has a couple accessories in there to maintain a little bit of conditioning, but all the work tapers back. So you dissipate fatigue going to the meet, you put up your best meet day and so forth. Uh, the group training is group training. So it isn't going to be individually specific to your weaknesses but the accessories are specific to the movement. Right. So like, you know, on your squat day, you're, there's accessories focus on building the squat. On the deadlift day, there's accessories focus on building the deadlift. But it is not overly specific to the point where uh, they're individualized for you. So you could, but like Trevor mentioned, might as well just run the peaking program. This one wants to know if we have a P.O. box. would love to send you a t-shirt and a lapel mic. A lapel mic for the camera so you can hear us better. I mean, it records great for the podcast because we have the microphone that it actually records from. Realistically, like all of this is free. So whenever, <laughs> whenever, whenever someone complains about like the audio, the audio quality, whenever someone complains about like audio or video quality, I'm usually like, this is free. Like, yeah. You get this for free. So Riley told somebody off once because I, I do a lot of the tutorials literally like mid-workout while I'm out of breath and sweating in the gym. And someone's like, you know, I can hold a camera for him and he can wear a mic. And she's like, he doesn't have to do any of that shit. So you yeah. can go away. <laughs> no, no, no offense to this person who's saying anything right yeah. now. Like no offense to, to that uh notion but like it's free we're not like i'm not going to hire a production quality uh to record a podcast that we do for literally free like we don't we don't have a patreon we don't have anything that we put up right. we don't charge people for this um, we just put it up every single week so it's our if, way of giving back and helping the community yeah so nothing nothing against what you said sorry <laughs> yeah yeah uh, I'm making sure it says, what's up, everybody? Hey, what's up, guys? <laughs> I can't not say it. I don't know why it happens. It's just like a routine instinct. Um, Joey asked a question. It was an interesting question, but what are you guys most proud of with your seminars? And that's just not how I frame it. I'm not proud of being able to teach what I've learned. I'm not proud of the lifts I've made or the amount of clients I have or the achievements they have. I'm proud that those lessons keep getting passed on down the line. Every time I see somebody else make a video that uses the same cue and they're passing it on down the line, that's what I'm most proud of because the information I'm being put out there is being found to be useful and helpful and others are sharing it. I'm proud that the message grows. Mm -hmm. um, sure, I want to be successful and sure, I want to achieve things, but that's not what makes me proud. Pride's a dangerous thing because it builds a lot of ego. I'm proud that it's helping more and more and more people and that it's spreading. So that's always been the goal is to not have so much bullshit out there because there's plenty. And it's always been about like, can I make this easier for other people to learn how to do this or want to do this or that light bulb aha moment that gets rid of their frustration that makes them love the sport. I got a message this weekend after our seminar in, in Miami where someone's like, you said what I needed to hear and my, in, you know, my enthusiasm for training is back. Those are the things that make me proud. Those things that take off the shackles that allow someone to progress with this sport that they love so much and not be frustrated enough to the point where they want to quit, that's what makes me proud. It has nothing to do with what I achieve or the fact that I'm doing seminars or talking to people. It has to do that, that the message is received and not only received, spread to five more people, you know? 
Yeah. Um, I agree 100% with that. Like, I'm never going to um, just assume that we don't have to work hard for what we're doing. Like, um, we're both at the level that we're at with the uh, opportunities that we have because we worked hard for them. You know, like, if you put yourself out there, you generally reap the benefits, right? So, like, when Trevor and Greg started this, when Trevor started doing seminars, they just put themselves out there and said, Hey, who wants to have us? Like Mm -hmm. we have, we have knowledge to offer, obviously. Um, you know, I was fortunate enough to be, um, involved in those. And like now people are asking for Trevor and I to do seminars and now it's, uh, Trevor, Greg and I doing seminars. So like, I am proud of all of us for, um, you know, putting out the information, not being afraid to put ourselves out there in order to reap these benefits because we're working hard for them. So why not? Um, I personally obviously love the psychology aspect of the seminars because I feel like it is a very underrated thing. I do think that people try to talk about it, but they don't necessarily have to approach it. So I'm proud of the um, psychological aspect and like the mental aspect of training. Um, The breakdown of the SVD is always a good time too, because not only are we physically helping a lifter improve upon their weakness or being able to see where they break, uh, fall apart in a lift, but like that is more education for us also. Like the more lifters that we see in in person or in video, the more that we learn, the more information that we gather. So, you know, there may be a lifter that you see and you're like, oh man, I gotta watch. We do that a couple more times, you know, like I have to watch that and figure out what it is. Like you see an energy leak, but then you watch it and you're like, well, where is it coming from? So even as a coach, like seminars allow us to learn too, because it's more information and data going forward and being able to apply it to other lifters. And that's how you develop your coach's eye. You know, the the camera only shows so much and people often, often athletes are guilty of filming from favorable angles and rather than filming from an angle that exposes things, you know? So everybody wants to look at because they're posting these to Instagram. But sometimes as a coach, like, hey, I need you to take a, a, a diagonal shot from the rear so I can see where your shoulder position is with the bar when you're deadlifting and so forth. You know, stuff like that. When you're in a seminar setting, not only do you get to see what the athlete's doing, but the entire room gets to see what the athlete's setting. And as I show and point things out, I always make a point of this is what I see. Did you guys see that too? Or can you see it? Or I might even make them repeat it so they can see it and then give the correction. Because everybody in that room is someone's training partner somewhere and they're going to help give those cues and give those feedback and give that direction to other athletes and that's how it spreads. Mm-hmm. So you develop your coaching eye by being around these things and seeing these things because video doesn't always expose every angle. People often give you the most favorable angles. And you know that's one of the reasons why as an athlete you want to attend these seminars because you're going to help develop a coach's eye. You're going to start seeing what the coach sees and what they're looking for and what the cues and corrections are for those things to help people because no two people are the same. Absolutely. Unless you have a twin brother or sister. Then and even the then. <laughs> and even then, like, habits are different. You habits know? are different, so yeah. That can, so be, that can be different for movement. All right. One more question, maybe? Maybe two. We'll see what kind of time we have. Um, is it more important to train beltless for better bracing or practice bracing into your belt? This was a good question that Alexis answered because it's a chicken or the egg question. You know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And I, I mentioned in there that, you know, the science shows that we can create more intra-abdominal pressure, which is what bracing is, with the belt on and lift more load. So we never really want to ignore that and just go entirely without the belt for forever because we're gonna use more load and load is what actually is the driving force of strength. You'll get more reps with the belt on, you'll get more weight with the belt on and so forth. But the better you learn how to brace without the belt, the better you will learn how to brace with the belt. So there's always a point of, yes, you do want to not necessarily have an entire beltless block per se. You can, like right now I'm doing my first four weeks beltless. 
but you do want to get to a point where you start pushing up your beltless numbers. I talked to a lifter once who would start belting for their squats at 60% and I mentioned the bracing to them and went over some cues and then eventually when they pushed their ability to go beltless all the way up to 80%, their squat shot up like 30 pounds because they learned how to brace and support better in the belt as well because they built it up. Now, squatting beltless doesn't necessarily build a thicker, stronger core musculature that transfers over to the squat, but it does build squat confidence. If you can handle more without the belt, you're that much more confident with it. Deadlifting without the belt does build more erector spinae strength because you can mask erector spinae strength by having the belt on and creating that intra-abdominal pressure. But when you do train your, your deadlift beltless, you're going to start building that erector strength all the way up and down the spine. So there is a little bit more of a carryover for deadlifts than there is for squats, but the mental carryover for a lot of people for squats, like if you take 90% of your max squat beltless, all of a sudden you're real freaking confident when you throw that belt on. You know, you get to that point where you have that confidence built in there. And that's probably the best benefit besides learning how to hold, hold your body, stabilize and brace, is the confidence you build. Like you start moving higher and higher numbers without a belt. It's like putting on your superhero cape. All of a sudden when you put the belt on, you're like, I got this. Uh, so, okay. So when you brace uh, with or without a belt, it should be the same, right? Mm -hmm. um, but <laughs> something that I see very often is that people can brace effective. This goes either way, I guess. People can brace effectively without the belt, but when they put the belt on, it's like they forget, or alternatively, the other way around. Like, um, people can brace with the belt on, but don't know how to do it without the belt on. So you should realistically know how to brace with or without it. Um, a common problem that I see with people not being able to brace with the belt on is, one, their belt is too tight, and they are physically breathing around it instead of into it and expanding it out. You can actually, like, if I see someone's belt so tight that they are they have rolls. They have created a muffin top. Um, I'm probably going to assume that your belt is a little bit too tight and you're going to end up breathing around it, which is chest breathing and it's expanding your rib cage and you are no longer stacked. Um, so that's a problem that I see with belted, with people that are belted because they assume it has to be so, so tight and they actually physically can't breathe around it anymore. So usually I recommend that person to open up the belt one notch so that way they can breathe and expand it out and, and breathe down, like breathe down into your butt and expand it out um, instead of breathing around it and just relying on the rigidity of the belt to hopefully stabilize you. Yeah. Um, so I'm a fan of beltless training. Um, it doesn't have to be all the time. You know, when people ask general rule of thumb is like 80% and above, I recommend uh, training with a belt. But the stronger that you make your core, the stronger your belted brace should be also if mm -hmm. you're not overly tightening your belt and breathing away from it and you're breathing into it. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, there's another one here that I actually want to get to from, from Vanessa. And it's like, do you ever have a time where you were unmotivated to do a meet or a time where you had cold feet? And that's kind of related. Um, yeah, there's plenty of times where I've been unmotivated to do a meet and I've done the meet anyways. Why well, should preface that? It's like... There are times where life gets a little tough or busy and I, I lose the motivation to do the meat, not the train, but to do the meat per se. Motivation comes and goes. Motivation is not consistent. I don't wake up every day and like, I'm going to kick today in the dick. It doesn't happen every day. Uh, it can wait, which is why your habits are what carry you through. If your habit is to eat the way you're supposed to eat, sleep the way you're supposed to eat, train the way you're supposed to train, you're going to show up on meet day and have a great performance, whether you're motivated to do it or not, because you've done what you have to do. So the more habitual, hence habitual strength, the more habitual you make your life, the easier it is to go through things and the less worry and pressure you have as far as the cold feet, because you know that you've done the behaviors you're supposed to do to perform the way you want to perform. 
like I said, motivation is not always going to be there. That can come and go depending upon how stressed out you are in life or how busy things are or what comes up. But, you know, and I hate to use the word discipline because it's really not discipline. It's habits. How well you ingrain and build your habits is how well you do with everything in life. It's not discipline. I am not a super disciplined person. I grew up the laziest person you'd ever meet. I didn't even leave the couch. I would eat a bag of potato chips every day and a two liter soda. I was a heavy set kid and I had no work ethic whatsoever. It wasn't ingrained in me a little bit. Now I'm accused of being a workaholic who doesn't spend any time doing anything else except for working and training and whatever. And that may be true, but that's what my habit has become. I get so much joy and fulfillment out of what I do, I do it 24 seven basically. Like I can't even go to sleep at night because I'm thinking about things I could be helping people with. And so it's one of those things where you, you have to understand that if you've built the habits and behaviors, the motivation no longer matters. And the fear will dissipate. And we joked about this on, on at, not at the seminar, but to people at the seminar. The hardest lift to do on meet day is opening squat. Always. <laughs> opening squat, no matter how light you open, is the hardest lift to do on meet day because you're in front of the crowd. You're not used to that in training. It's the one thing that breaks your habit. Yeah. You can warm up the same. You can do whatever the same. You can play whatever you want. But once you're in front of that crowd and you're in front of the people and there's judges there, all of a sudden, the hardest lift to do is the opening squat because it's a break in your routine. It's a break in your habit. Once you get through opening squat, the rest of the day is a brief. So I always tell people, just, just open light enough that it doesn't matter. Open light up so you can own that on your worst day with Ebola. You know, you just make sure you can do it. And then the rest of the day gets that much easier. So if you have nerves or cold feet, open light. No one cares what you open with. I have lifters who do this all the time. I want to open at this PR. Dude, who cares? Leave yourself room to grow. No one cares what you open with. They only care about how you finish a day. And I got to be honest, they don't even care about that. They're going to forget about it tomorrow. You'll remember it, but they'll forget about it tomorrow. So build the habits up front in training and in life. Open light enough that it doesn't matter no matter how you do and just enjoy the day and enjoy the experience because I've never been to a meet no matter how much I didn't want to do it that I didn't have fun. I think it was last year. Or I, don't, I know it was last year's power surge at about six or seven weeks out. Um, I looked at Trevor at one point and I was like, oh shit, we're six or seven weeks out. We should probably take this a little seriously. Like we, <laughs> we were in the middle of like a busy travel season and a lot of like normal life stuff or whatever. And, you know, at that point we were like, damn, okay, we have to, we have to like peak. Now. Yeah. Um, and this is also when meets were being canceled left and right. We had no idea if it was going to go on. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we had to switch to a peak and like we had been doing the work the whole time, but it was kind of like on autopilot mode, right? Because we were traveling all the time. We had different life things going on. It was the peak of COVID. So everything was kind of stressful. So training was pretty much on autopilot. We never missed a session. We always so, did what we were supposed mm -hmm. to, but because we had been doing the work, like Trevor mentioned, you've been doing the work. So you're ready no matter what. So at about six weeks out, I think we were like, all right, well, let's, let's, let's deload and peak. And yeah. that's pretty much what we did. And, um, you know, we were, we both kind of went into it with not super, super high expectations. I don't think like we were going to give it our all. It's not like we were just going to go through a breeze, whatever, but, um, you know, we were just like, well, we get what we get. And that's kind of what it ended up being. And we just both kind of had fun on the day. Um, Trevor broke a world record that year. Um, I, it was my first meet at 165, so it was my first First international lead total, 165. Yeah. Uh, first international, yeah, at 165. Yeah. Um, so it uh, it was just fun, you know, and like we were around people that we enjoy being around, and it was a good time. And even though we weren't really super motivated or driven to be in it, or really our heads were, weren't in it at all until like the last four to five weeks, um, it still turned out to be a good day. Habits so, carried us right through. Yeah, so even if it's not feeling like your best meat prep or it's not feeling like it's going to be your best meat, who cares? Just do it anyways. Yep. Um, even if it's not your best meat, that's not going to be your last one. So just do it. Go through it. Have fun. Um, do what you know how to do. You know how to squat bench deadlift. So 
Yep. Do it. All right. Awesome. So thank you guys for joining us. Thank you for dropping awesome questions on the live recording of the podcast. Thank you for downloading and sharing the podcast when it comes out every Monday and every platform. Thank you guys who've been buying and supporting and sharing the Culture Nutra post. It's really awesome, especially since we dropped so many tips on there as well. So if you don't know that, there's two to three tips a week on the Culture Nutra website, which is at Culture Nutra or at Culture underscore Nutra. I don't even remember. It's not on the website. It's on the Instagram. <laughs> on the Instagram. At yeah. Culture underscore Nutra. At Culture underscore Nutra dot com. And then of course, and stuff like that. So thank you guys. And if you guys need programming, you don't understand it, and you just want a community to be a part of, you can join the Cultivating Strength team platform, which is on Train Heroic. Your first week is free, so you have nothing to lose there. Yeah. All Absolutely. Right. Thank you guys. Have a great one. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>